Hi, I'm Dr. Rosalind Beer, and you're listening to Further with Founders. Throughout this series, I'll be speaking to business founders within the Further Network. They'll be telling me about their journey so far, the highs and the lows, the bootstrapping and the funding rounds, the business challenges and the human stories. The guest on this episode is Ali Kavanagh of StrikePay, a fintech offering faster payment solutions. Enjoy the chat. Today I'm joined with Ali Kavanagh of StrikePay and Neve Sterling, a partner of Further VC. So Ali, um, thanks for coming. I'd uh, love to start off with your background and uh, before StrikePay, what you did in your career to date and your entrepreneurial journey. Uh, okay, thanks for having me. Um, I started off a computer science degree ages ago, um, never worked a day in compu- programming a computer. Um, immediately after graduation, I went into the kind of the business side of things and uh, sales and marketing and that um, for a number of years with um, early stage tech companies um, before kind of deciding to do the same myself. And then since then, I've uh, started five um, uh, tech companies. Okay. And so I've been with nine uh, startups in, in total and a mixture of some success stories there some learning experiences and a couple of ongoing concerns, including StrikePay, obviously. Okay, and before we get into StrikePay, so you'd kind of mentioned there, so you've, you've had a lot of experience with a lot of businesses and something you'd mentioned to me about kind of making money for other people. Was that kind of an important thing in motivating you to do your own business? Yeah, the first company that did well um, in that space was a, a company, that, and I was in kind of my late 20s, and... I was their top sales guy, and um, they had a very nice exit. And most of the, there were seven people in the sales team, and most of it was coming through me, more than fifty percent. And I got nothing out of it. <laughs> and um, now, apart from like a really good time and an invite to go out to California and work with the the new parent company, which was fantastic, actually amazing experience. But I realised that actually, you know, I, I was just making other people. Uh, successful more more than myself so from then on I decided that yeah you know I'd either get involved in starting or be kind of early enough where I have some skin in the game and or some upside and uh, so that was that turning point but it was quite late actually by today's standards I think it was about 28 29 okay. whereas I'm saying a lot of people realize that at 21 there and uh, and 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 start their own thing but I got there anyway so before, you know, you went into your kind of career working for others and before StrikePay, you know, did you have any entrepreneurial influences or did you have any sort of hankerings into that as an early child? You know, um, anyone in your family was into, you know, setting up their own business? Uh, no, actually, well, my grandparents' generation, yes, but not my immediate kind of parents' generation. They're completely different medical people. And um, but I did for sure uh, feel that. I'd like my own business someday and that I was entrepreneurial and there were other things that I wanted to do. Um, um, but I, I guess I didn't act on it until that moment, the, when, the light bulb moment when I realised, um, <laughs> you know, I should look after number one. Okay. Yeah. So what, were, what was the precursor to Strike Pay and where did the idea and concept come from? Um, so, uh, well, there's a couple of different stories which are both true of how I came about. One I'm not really allowed to tell because uh, I got in trouble. Um, because it was during the lockdown and it was doing something that you weren't supposed to do during the first lockdown, um, uh, which was socialise and um, order drinks. Okay. 
Um, um, and I got in trouble for saying that before, but I, I'll, I'll go ahead and tell it because it's, I like the story and it's true, which is um, I was doing a, a project with um, half a dozen others during the first lockdown and um, we went into a building which was big enough for 50 people and we spaced out. So we massive space and we decided to be in our own bubbles because we really wanted to work on this project. And then we, we heard that um, uh, a pub, which I shouldn't name, uh, was doing this dial um, order service they would deliver they would deliver pints to to your house or whatever so we we dialed on a friday we dialed in six pints of guinness and about 20 minutes later this guy arrives with a big heavy wooden tray with holes cut out of it so the pints wouldn't fall over and he'd walked you know about 400 meters probably close to half a kilometer and i thought god if anyone deserves a tip it's this guy and um, I had, at that point, already stopped carrying cash completely. Mm-hmm. Ten days into lockdown, I stopped carrying cash and still hadn't gone back. And I even stopped carrying debit card or credit card. And, but I thought that was just me. And so I said to, to the other uh, five people with me, OK, we've got to tip this guy. He <laughs> really worked. And no one had any cash. Mm-hmm. And, and, and then I started asking them, like, you're not carrying cash anymore? And they all said, no, don't carry any cash. And um, I said to the guy, look, I'm really sorry. Um, and he said, no, no, don't worry, no one's tipping. And like, he said that, like, it's gone, tips are gone. And I, in, the, in the half an hour between then and the next round of six months again, this way I'm not allowed to tell the story, um, uh, I kind of thought, God, if there was something that he was carrying, that um, I could just, with the one thing that everyone has, our phone, there's something I could just tap, you know, or scan that I could tip him. Um, you know, I just thought that'd be amazing, but there's nothing out there, you know, that, it, that's essentially a payment terminal and like there's no payment terminal that's low cost enough that can be mass produced in millions, like many, many millions of people affected that, uh, that like, no one is providing anything, mm-hmm. you know, not even a small payment terminal like SumUp, they're not going to go and buy that or iZettle or anything. I thought there's got to be a different way. So I, I, I kind of had an idea of a way and I when he came back again, I said to the guy, like, if you had something here that I could scan or, or tap, you know, just give you a, a couple of euro, would, would you use it? And he said, God, of course. And I asked everyone else, would you? And they all said, yeah, we would. And I, I said, well, you would have made 12 euro there, yeah. right? Because we all would have tapped it. And, um, and then, so I had the idea and I just uh, went, uh, thought, who can actually uh, validate this idea and potentially help build it? So I reached out to someone who I'd been doing some uh, work with, who was, a, who was a leading payments expert, and who'd built um, payment technology companies before. And I said, what if there's something we could do using, you know, whether it's NFC or, or RFID or QR codes or something where we could actually have an instant payment, where, which in this case, a tip, that where someone w- could actually just immediately tap it and wouldn't have to download an app or open an account, like literally single-click payment. And so he... He said, "Leave it with me," and he came back next day and said, "Not only do I think it's possible, I think it's patentable, and I'll quit my job and join you today." Okay. And so that's what happened, and we did that and um, built the product. And three months later, um, we're test. It was revenue generating the, the 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 first version of the product. So just talk to me there. So you have this. You have the tech. 
idea and you've got a tech background but then you you need a device created and a kind of a prototype so was that what you said yeah, about building the actual prototype so uh, so that, that's charles dard who i'm referring to who's my co-founder okay. yeah, yeah. Track. and um so he built himself the first version of the product and what was uh, and, and i needed someone who could actually build it because i'd forgotten how to code at this point okay so what did that look like you know what was the idea oh, uh, well, actually, know, so you've got a couple of samples here yeah so when I'm, in my hand i have something which is like a little key fob it's about the size of a one euro maybe two euro coin and um, it's the world's smallest payment terminal, I think, still. I've never seen anything like that uh, this size. It has NFC tech in it. And when, you, when anyone in the world taps it with their phone, it brings up a screen saying how much you want to pay, Ollie, or tip Ollie, whatever. So we can produce you know, millions of these and send them out. We don't need to know who they're going to. We've no back office manual setup process or anything. I can give each one of you in the room one of these. You tap it with your phone. It will say, would you like to activate this? 30 seconds later, you present it to someone else and, and, and ask them to tap it, and they say, how much do you want to pay Roz? Okay. And they will say, whatever, 50 euro, okay. and you'll have it within about three seconds. And had you any experience in sort of the finance sector within that, or was this a, com- you know, this was your idea, and it didn't really matter, you were going to just figure it out, you know, you needed the technology. Like, how were you feeling about, you know, dealing with monetary issues, finance, you know, was that at all in I, I had some experience because okay. uh, I co-founded a, a peer-to-peer finance company, which is a regulated financial technology company in Ireland um, in 2016 or 17. Um, uh, that was my first foray into the kind of fintech space. And the reason I did it is because I was having such a good experience with linked finance, if you heard of them, which is a peer-to-peer finance marketplace for funding business business loans. And it's very disruptive. Uh, you know, they're, uh, they were able to do what, you know, AIB were taking 10 weeks to do, they were able to do in two days um, because they had a really good platform, um, but they had no competition. And I was having a really good experience earning about 9% return on money that I was lending to businesses through them safely. So I started up uh, Flender, okay. which is, uh, I co-founded Flender, which is doing something similar, slightly different uh, take uh, on a newer platform. And we reduced that process from... 10 weeks with AIB, down to 24 hours. Okay. Um, they would have the funding. And these are really, really good, viable, solid businesses who are were by and large already pre-approved by uh, a traditional bank for 150 grand expansion funding, but they couldn't afford to wait, you know, nine, 10 weeks to, to get the money. Okay, so you, you weren't afraid of it. It wasn't something no. completely... No, that was a, We, we got FCA regulation for that company. Okay. which So that was... Um, uh, yeah, which was my first experience of working with regulators, um, which is not easy. But um, uh, so it was, it's my first uh, time in that space. Yeah. So you mentioned there. So just before we go into then the launch of Strike Pay or your first validation and and going to market, you know the name. Where did it come from? You know what made you come up? Um, with it? Oh, it's just with your phone, you Strike or Tap. Yeah. I just okay. thought Strike. Okay. So the company was Strike and. and Hopefully, will be again someday. But um, we, we so we called it Strike, and uh, what we did, what we realised then was um, getting um, the top of kind of search engine rankings. With the uh, Strike was going to cost us probably fifty million dollars. Um, so we added the pay on, and now it's quite easily. If you put in Strike Pay, we come up to the top every time. So the decision to add that on was. Um, was was purely based on that. But my dream is that one day we'll go back to just simply being Strike. Yeah, as I said, you were like Beyonce Knowles, but you want to be Beyonce. (laughs) So we'll just end up being Strike. That's exactly what I was thinking. Exactly. So, okay, so you mentioned there when you started, you were actually revenue generating very fast. So can you talk us through that stage? 
Yeah, actually, and interestingly, sorry, the, the first the first client actually wasn't even a, a tipping client. It was a charity um, because we realized that the tech that we had um, was just a, an, uh, a cash replacement technology. And um, the charities were really uh, scuppered because no one was carrying cash anymore. So the street collections, went, even when they were allowed to do them, weren't um, producing very much at all because everyone said, sorry, I have no change. But um, so I approached, um, I think, four of the largest charities in Ireland, household names, and said, here's what we're doing. Would you like to use our technology just to, uh, so people uh, can say, well, you can tap to donate without having to go out and buy a payment terminal that needs to be plugged in. It's not really mobile. Like literally we could give, um, you know, these uh, like a card, this like, like a debit card, which people can tap. It can be in a lanyard around the neck. Volunteers can just say, oh, just, you can, if you've no change, it's fine. Just tap there and make a donation. So I approached, as I said, I think the, the top charities in Ireland and through LinkedIn. And, you know, normally you'd be lucky to hear something in a month. But within an hour, some of them were getting back saying, oh, my God, yes, we'll, we'll do that, like, next week. And they normally plan a year in advance. So, um, like, so I think our first client was Cystic Fibrosis Foundation. And then very quickly we had... We rolled out in every spa in Ireland with Make-A-Wish Foundation and Spa is their corporate partner and same with Marie Keating Foundation and so we're in thousands of locations with them now and it, it's the same we didn't have to build anything new it's the same platform okay. it's just it, uh, the easy payments uh, cash replacement payments so what were the challenges that you faced so you know how you had the device you had your co-founder so was that really pivotal in terms of your skill set and his, I mean, without that yeah, mix, balance there. yeah, I couldn't. You know, neither of us, I don't think, could have done it on our own. And um, I know I couldn't have anyway. And uh, so, the, but the, that wasn't. So the main problem was fixed there, which is you got the right founding team. Um, what we had then was loads of problems that um, were because a we're doing something new, right? So we had to invent form factors like each one of these is a form factor that's a card that's like a key fob that's a sticker that's a cardboard strut that is in pretty much every hair and beauty salon in ireland now at the front desk and um but but these are all new form factors that hadn't been done before so we had to kind of invent them and for every one of these there was another five that didn't work <laughs> so uh, uh, it was a fun problem to have because you're you know you're creating something new inventing something new so we had to uh educate ourselves on hardware and Charles and I had zero experience of hardware we'd never done that before we were software tech guys um, so that was kind of fun um, then we had to educate the market um, like for so was it more about education than selling I mean it was that selling was easy because so, okay. it's something that everyone in fact they find hard to believe actually okay. in fact one of the problems we had like with this with Make-A-Wish and Spar um, you know that was in every Spar in Ireland and um, people find it find it hard to believe it's a payment terminal, you know. And I said, well, that, it's a sticker; it can't be a payment terminal. So we had to educate them, and Miriam McCallum did a video saying, "No, you really can tap yeah. with your phone and this kind of thing." So we had to educate people on that. We also had to teach people how to use QR codes because okay. three years ago, no one was using QR codes. We'd kind of seen them, and they'd actually been almost written off. Okay. You know that it was a fad, um, and so. We, now everyone's using them. We're partly <laughs> responsible for that, you know, educating the, the, the Irish market and using QR codes. Okay. So they were a couple of, um, they're probably the main obstacles. Okay. Yeah. So the, te- the, the team was kind of really key in terms of uh, getting, um, you know, you moving in terms of development. And as you said, the hardware was something you were not used to. Um, 
sales and getting traction seemed to come quite easily. So, you know, it does sound like it moved quite quickly, but do you think that came from your own experience in your career and driving sales and knowing that this is what you were on to? Um, you know, was there an inner, you know... Uh, it was passion. passion. It was, we were both, and still are, like super passionate about this. We know that we're doing something cool and new. And the company's involved since then, uh, but we're still doing stuff that's really innovative in the cash replacement, let's call it, space. Okay. Yep. Um, and there's a huge need for cash replacement, and we're only touched, we're on the tip of the iceberg at this point, you know. Okay. Um, so talk to me about the topic of resilience. So, you know, you've had a really interesting career up to strike pay and, and during you know, the last formative years of, of the company, you know, inner resilience, what, what times or phases, you're in COVID, obviously you're navigating through that time. Were there times that that was difficult for you, for the business? You talked about the education. Were there any points that were really, you were struggling with in terms of getting it over the line? Um, yeah, I, I guess, so we started the, the, the worst of times and the best of times in some way. Actually, we wouldn't have existed, but possibly if it wasn't for COVID. I mean, we're not a COVID company because um, our business has tripled since the end of COVID, you know. Um, but uh, the idea originally came from that. Building up a team of new people who we uh, couldn't see in person was, wasn't, was a challenge. And we looked at lots of different ways, lots of different technologies to try and make it feel like we were in the same room. Um, those uh, watercolor conversations, you know, just never happened, and so that was a, that was a challenge having um, uh, people that you, you can trust who you never <laughs> you can't you can't see what they're doing. Uh, that can, uh, so I think that's probably a challenge a lot of people had. But for us, uh, you know, for the first year we we had no office, and we we got together once. I can't remember what, how we managed to do it, but there was a gap between you know lockdowns, and we all we got together, and that was amazing. Um, but uh, the, the the resilient side yeah, um, uh, really didn't come to kind of later, which was when um, you know the, the effect of what's happened in the last year, you know, and in the market and the funding area. We'd done quite well funding uh, pre you know Ukrainian war, and um, we in fact we found it very easy. We're oversubscribed for both times we went out for for money. Um, but since then, it, it hasn't been. So in terms of resilience, we did have to make some difficult decisions during, you know, in kind of Q3-ish time frame. And uh, we did, like, we pulled the trigger earlier than Twitter and Stripe and Facebook and all those guys who did the same thing. So we decided to you know, try and cut our costs and and change our focus a little bit. And it was the best thing we ever did, actually. Two things have happened since. I mean, it was really painful. Okay. And, you know, we uh, kind of had to say goodbye to some good friends and during that process but for the but in order to survive and, and protect the company for our investors it was the right move uh, but since then our costs have gone way down um revenue has hockey sticked as i said we tripled since the end of covid um and uh so we've had uh and that's actually largely possibly due to focus when a smaller team yeah. you're really focusing Lean, on yeah. important you know the, the key decisions and and it was very tempting to kind of run around. We had a load of people running around all over the place, you know, for the first kind of year, year and a half, and doing a great job and getting, like, the first 1,000 B2B customers on board was phenomenal. 
it was expensive, uh, but since then we've now got way more than that um, with a smaller uh, number of people and just been pickier about the partnerships. Okay, so so you did touch on the funding there. So mm. initially, was it bootstrapped or was it funded by yourself? Yeah, funded? No, Charles and I funded it. Yeah, okay. and until we got. Um, and this is unusual now. Uh, well, certainly for me, anyway. Normally, I kind of go out for funding based on a brochure, <laughs> but um, I don't know. I, I think it was just because I got so lucky with Charles, who was like able to build it so quickly. Um, I suppose we're in a position where we're able to kind of self-fund it for for that time, and we didn't actually go out to money until we act. So yeah, we didn't go out to angels for pre-seed until we actually uh, were in a position where we could show, look, we we've. we've where we've increased um, donations for all these charities. The product's working. Um, the, the charities like it. The, the custom, their customers who are using it love it because they actually want to give money. And then our launch customer on the tipping side was actually a group called Camille Thai, you know, the Thai food restaurants. They have a couple of hundred delivery drivers whose incomes have gone really down because they relied heavily on tips, and we doubled their incomes overnight, actually. So, like, incredibly fast product market fit then, we went and spoke to the and angels. Again, that was one of those sectors that was booming in in the times that it was. You yes, know, actually, yeah, true. So that would have helped yeah. in terms of... So we were able to go to investors and, and it was nice to be able to say, yeah, it's not just a brochure, it's actually a working product. So and, sorry, and the we've also filed a global patent protection oh, on it. Okay. Yeah. okay. So the validation, market validation and traction, yeah. you know, was pivotal in terms of getting you attention and getting you being taken seriously. Yeah. And then there was another thing we did as well, which was... Um, because we wanted to run so quickly, we valued the company um, quite lowly, uh, quite a low level. Normally, uh, in every previous company I've been with, we've gone in higher, you know, selling the dream. But actually, we thought, no, we're actually going to go for a really low valuation, just raise the money really quickly, run, run, because it's a land grab. We're the first people to market. Let's just get out there. So that was a good move, um, because then in the next round, we were able to kind of make up for it and and adjust the valuation. Okay, so Neve. Um, as the in-house expert, <laughs> um, can you talk to us about what investors, VCs are looking for and what might be attractive um, for them in terms of looking for a company to invest in? Yeah, uh, thanks, Ros. And just a really great listening to Ali's story. And I suppose, you know, it's a real um, um, poster, poster boys, dare I say it, uh, for, you know, uh, here's people who've, who've done this, walked this walk before and have had successful companies and they also have domain expertise. So, you know, the first thing that we're looking for in terms of, um, from a venture capital perspective, an interesting, you know, I'm five and a half years uh, from in an angel uh, capacity and, um, 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 and with HBAN uh, and now stepping into further VC and those you know they're slightly different it's funding but they're slightly different stages and looking for different things in companies um, so you know I would have met um, um, Ollie and Charles back back then when they were still doing the, the, the little tags and that so amazing to see so from a VC hat um, you know brilliant to see that you know I'm looking for exactly the kind of growth that they're that that they're showing and listening to Ali's story when he's talking about how they have iterated and that level of agility within a small team to be able to test um, and validate markets really quickly um, and showing that adoption timing obviously is going to be has been really critical I think for you know for your growth in that um, but it wasn't just COVID actually people's habits changed entirely it wasn't as you said a COVID company where you have a COVID bump and then you know uh, people resume their normal their, their normal lives actually people's habits have entirely changed um, you know so so you know strike pay is catering to that but from a VC perspective what we're looking at is actually you know you have to, to 
to have a, a domain expert coming in or a team that's made up of domain experts that has experience and success and a track record there. Uh, yes, some learnings um, uh, along the way, um, you know, is always really exciting. Um, and to see them when they're coming in the door and they have that kind of level of traction, uh, you know, where you're, you know, they understand who their market is, uh, why these people are, are, are using their technologies, how difficult it is, is it for them to swap out with how they're currently solving the problem. Is this market really big? You know, is it big or is it European? Is it, you know, or is it global, but it's very niche? Or actually, is this a, a you know, a really big global problem? And there's some of the key pieces that I'm going to be going to be looking for. Um, and, you know, we're at Ollie's stage now where they're, you know, starting to, you know, to really hit scale, you know, you're looking at you know, how have they built out that team um, and how they're going to execute on the milestones when you're coming in and you're looking for funding. That's one of the things I'm going to be asking companies is how much are you raising um, and, and where is that going to get you to? Um, for sure, valuation is going to have a, a part to play in some of the decisions that we make as well. And, you know, the landscape has changed in the last year or two. So. Yeah. Okay, excellent. Um, so from that, obviously you're, you're actively, you know, pushing the company forward. Before we get into kind of the future, what, what advice would you give others coming behind you, scaling up, growing, you know? Well, if you can do what we did in this one, which was, you know, um, before you even go to an investor, have something that you know works. If you can't do that, um, it's great. Now, a lot of people can't because you know, it takes time and money and um, and you have to quit your job. And uh, it's a bit of advice I'd, I'd really give because there being there's some of the couple of startups that I started where I didn't go full on, take the plunge in the beginning or guess what, the ones that didn't work. You know, so you really, really got to, like, if you believe it enough, it, it, you know, to quit your job, then 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 do it. If you if you don't, if you, if you don't quit your job, then it seems like you probably don't believe in yourself or the product enough. And almost you're asking people to invest, and if you're not going to invest yourself, you kind of begs the question. So I think that kind of lines up with that. Mm. Um, and personal advice, you know, in terms of like longevity, work-life balance, you know, any any advice on that in terms of stress levels and managing uh, yourself. Uh, I, I'm kind of decent enough at managing the stress levels now. I have been through phases where I wasn't. Um, I do. Uh, I, 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 look, I never switch off 100%. Um, but I, I, I think because actually at the moment, particularly because I enjoy it, actually, um, the, the stress levels I've had in the past were when I didn't switch off, and uh, but, but I didn't really believe or love you know, the project or the, or the, the product. Um, so I don't, I've got a, a decent balance now. If you really, really love it, it's okay to kind of have your, your phone on silent but still check into the, you know, your Slack messages every now and then, even on Saturday and Sunday, as long as you've got an understanding family. So do you think kind of passion is really key in terms of driving something that you need to yeah, really yeah, believe in it? Yeah. And then your self-belief. Yeah, and I kind of assume that that's what the VCs look for as well, you know, you know that... Yeah. It's, it's this person, you know, forget about the product in some cases, you know, do they have the passion and belief to, yeah. to make something happen? And yeah, the staying power. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Focus as well is, is really important you're talking about. Um, you know, uh, that, that agility to test and, uh, you know, you're saying you're kind of doing everything at one stage and that's okay in a really early stage company um, where you're still trying to figure stuff out. But once you're getting to a point where you, you know, you want to make sure that actually there's, there's, there's strate- a strategy behind these decision makings and, you know, an understanding from the founding team, uh, um, you know, why they're doing what they're doing. 
Yeah, and I think I think as well from your what you said earlier, having that team and having the co-founder has been really integral to the success, and having somebody you can trust and who's great at what they do, and you're good at what you do. Yeah, but but specifically, if it's a tech company, yeah. um, there's got to be someone on the founding team who can build the product. Yeah. Um, I know some companies, very few, have had good experiences by outsourcing, mm-hmm. um, but by and large, um, I've never had a good experience with that. So, um, and the really successful, fast-moving companies, you know, um, do from day one have someone, a really good product person in house, and equally, someone who's got a tech idea, if they don't have the you know, commercial skills needs to also find someone yeah. who can help drive that. So it's that kind of balance. Yeah. Um, so what's next for StrikePay? And in terms of the next, you know, the growth and expansion, mm. and you mentioned, you kind of alluded to new exciting things that you're involved in. Um, so do you want to tell us about those? Yeah, well, it's, so we proved it, obviously, in Ireland. We came, well, basically the monopoly in Ireland, in our, in the, for, certainly for the tipping space. Um, and that product market fit that we've found here, we found it in the UK now as well. So we 4,000 locations in the UK now are using us as a, as a payment point, payment terminal. Um, and we have, uh, that's before we've even put someone on the ground in the UK. We don't have anyone in the UK. Um, so it's scaling into that market, which is at least 10, probably 20 times bigger. Uh, we think we can dominate there. You know, we've one competitor over there who's actually not that much bigger than us in the market. It's so much bigger. So I think um, we can become market leader in the UK as well. Uh, we have a US entity as well. We've done some trials in Florida, and it works. People like to use it. Um, but going in there, we're not going to do uh, on our own because it's like just getting lost and spend all your money. And and also, there's uh, and re- from a regulatory regulatory side, there's 49 different jurisdictions in the US. So like you really, it's like launching in one state is a challenge. Mm-hmm. So we'll do that through partners. Uh, um, we're able to operate in I think the UK and 27 European countries right now. Okay. Um, and there's very little competition in Europe. So um, un- until uh, we move into the US through a partner, and there is one partner actually who's looking to put us in 5,000 locations in the US. If we can figure out the regulatory side, we'll do that. Uh, otherwise, we'll focus on UK and Europe. And what about the diversification? So you went from the donations in the charity sector tipping and were there other kind of extensions of the product? Yeah, well, the whole, we have a single platform, um, so they're just kind of skins, if you want, on top. And the, the, but, but what we do better than anyone is onboard micro-merchants at scale. And that example I gave to you earlier, if I gave everyone uh, here one of these, um, and 30 seconds later, you're all on board it, you're all micro-merchants. Mm-hmm. No one else has been able to do that, actually. All the big guys, PayPal tried that and failed, uh, someone tried and failed, Stripe tried and failed. We can onboard micro-merchants at scale, and the reason we can do that, sorry, the reason we built the platform so that it could do that was because of the original use case. Um, the guy who brought the six pints of Guinness, um, I calculated, calculated that there were 60 million of him or her, people like that, just in the UK, Ireland, and US. So we needed to something that we could send to 60 million people that they could onboard themselves at scale. Um, and so we built it to fix that problem. And it, anyway, it turns out that we've got, and that's what the patent protection is around, by the way, it turns out that we've got something that is really useful for um, cash replacement and onboarding micro-merchants at scale in other areas. And, um, but we don't, uh, like we don't have to have multiple platforms and multiple products. We've okay. just a single nice, underlying platform, yeah. All in-house owned by ourselves. And 
just to finish off, you know, your personal vision. So is this your baby? Is this the one that's going to run the distance? Or do you see yourself, you know, maneuvering or, you know, um, exiting? Or what's the, what's the kind of long-term strategy? Um, well, we, we don't have any immediate-term exit um, uh, plans. We have had three approaches. And um, but we're just at too early stage to get significant value, and then also with the kind of repricing of fintechs in the past kind of year as well, um, uh, we're, we're we're better off just continuing to do this, you know, scaling up growth, land grabbing, and what we have is you know already valuable will be I think very valuable, mm-hmm. and there's a reasonable chance let's say in the next five years that will be at home in some other organisation, yeah, probably. A household brand name, Payments Company. And ultimately Strike. And Yeah, we'll be back to Strike. Yeah, we'll drop the pay at the end. <laughs> we'll drop the nulls. We'll yes, just be exactly. Beyonce. We'll just yeah. be Beyonce and Strike. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, I have to say your journey is really inspiring. And thank you so much for coming in and sharing it with us. And thanks to Neve as well for your comments. Thanks to you both. You've been listening to the Further With Founders podcast. I am Dr. Rosalind Beer. I'm looking forward to you joining us on our next episode.